This morning we're going to read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. Uh, it can be found in our pew Bibles or on your phone. We'll take a few moments to, to find this beautiful account of how Joseph accepts Jesus as his son. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. This is, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John, for praying and leading, or leading us in prayer and reading scripture for us. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I remember going to the movies to see the first Batman film. I know there's been tons of them since then, but this was a big deal, okay? The first Batman film. And I remember this scene in the movie. It's relatively early on in the movie. Uh, Batman is chasing this, like, low-level thug through the streets, you know, the dark streets of Gotham, and then finally he grabs a hold of this guy, and he slams him up against the wall, and the guy's like, please don't kill me, please don't kill me, please don't kill me. And Batman says, oh no, I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. And this guy says, what are you? And he responds with, I'm Batman. So cool. Now notice, though, what this guy said was not just, who are you? He asked, what are you? Because Batman, he seemed superhuman. He seemed like he was from another planet. That's what we like about superheroes, right? They, they are super. They can do things the rest of us can't do. They, they seem to be from a, a completely different place. Not all of them are, but some of them are, like, like Superman himself. Those of you who, who know anything about Superman and his history know that he's from Krypton, a planet from another galaxy. And because he lives here with a yellow sun rather than a red sun, he has all these superhuman powers that, that uh, he uses to fight evil and do good. I'm a superhero junkie, okay? I love the Marvel movies. Some of them are better than others. But just the very concept of a being who is bigger, badder, better than any other kind of being, it, it, it captivates me. And I think it captivates 
a lot of you as well. You know, when Jesus began his ministry, people weren't just asking who was this guy, although they did. So, you know, the Pharisees were saying, hey, who's this, who is this that he can forgive sins? Or Herod, uh, he, he says, who is this that I'm hearing about? Or, or the disciples, uh, when he uh, calms the storm, they say, who is this that even the waves and wind obey him? But actually, in each of those cases, they're not just asking who is Jesus, they're asking what is Jesus? You know, really only two people in human history, have had this constant question about not just who they are, but what they are. And those two people are Buddha and Jesus of Nazareth. When Buddha lived his ministry, his followers wondered if he was from some other place, whether he was uh, uh, different from the average human being, and, and he he kept telling them, actually, no, 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 I'm a man just like, like you. I'm just a human, flesh and blood. But Jesus, people asked the same thing about him, and Jesus said, no, I'm not just a man. I'm beyond man. I am the God-man. What is Jesus? That's the question that Matthew wants to answer in this passage that we just read. At the end of the genealogy in, in chapter 16, or sorry, in verse 1, <laughs> verse 16 of chapter 1. I didn't read it. We didn't, we didn't read it. But this is, this is interesting. It, the language changes from so-and-so is the father of so-and-so, and so-and-so is the father of so-and-so, and we go on and on and on. Father, father, father. And then, and then we get this. Jacob is the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. The wording is different with respect to Joseph's relationship to Jesus than all the other fathers and sons down through the genealogy. It's not father, but he's the, he's the husband of Mary who was the father. Matthew takes great pains to avoid calling Joseph Jesus' father. In chapter 2, verse 21, this is a little further down, this is after uh, Joseph and Mary take Jesus to Egypt because they're afraid that Herod wants to kill him, and they're coming back, and it says, so he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. So again, Matthew is very, very careful not to call Joseph Jesus' dad, because Matthew is claiming that Jesus' birth and Jesus' nature is not so-called natural. In verse 18 of this passage, it says this, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. Oh, sorry, I'm reading verse 19. Ooh, here we go. Sorry. Verse 18. <laughs> this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Literally, what that says there, where it says the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about, literally what it says is, the origin of Jesus Christ was like this. So actually, the virgin birth is not the biggest part of this story. The biggest part of this story is the conception of Jesus, that he had a virgin conception. It says in verse 18 that, that Mary found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit, that she discovered that she was with child through the Holy Spirit. And in verse 20, an angel comes to Joseph 
And he appears to Joseph in a dream and he says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because, listen for it, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did this. In other words, God did this. God has impregnated Mary with his very life. See, Joseph's, Jesus' origin, Matthew says, is not like our own. And his purpose for living is not like our own. It says, verse 22 and 23, all this took place to fulfill what the prophet had said through the, or what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God invaded the world. He punched a hole through that slab that we think exists between the physical and the spiritual, between the natural and the supernatural. He punched a hole through that. He invaded the world and he clothed himself with flesh. Matthew is saying, Jesus is not just a man like you and me. He is the God-man. He is fully human and fully divine at the same time and he is god with us, among us, in our presence. That's what Emmanuel means. That's what Jesus is. Or at least so says Matthew. Now, what do we do about this story? What do we do with this news? I mean, it's incredible news. Is it, is it even believable news? Is it, is it even possible? It's interesting. Fifty years ago... A lot of books were written by Christians trying to convince non-Christians that it is possible for a human being, for a woman to be impregnated by uh, God. And, and using arguments, trying to, to say that, look, if you accept certain aspects about the natural order, then we can agree that, that this is at least possible. Today thanks to quantum mechanics, we don't really have to do that so much anymore. People don't sit back and say, oh, it's absolutely impossible. They might say it's improbable, but they don't say it's impossible because the first rule of quantum mechanics is virtually anything's possible. <laughs> it really is. I'm trying to learn a little bit about quantum mechanics for my worldview class. It's fascinating stuff. Basically, quantum mechanics is all about how physics works on the very, 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 very smallest atomic slash subatomic scale, okay? And basically, the argument is this. We don't understand how physics works on the smallest subatomic scale because it doesn't work the same way as it does on the big scale that we're used to witnessing. In any case, today, we don't really have to argue with non-Christians about whether God could become a human being or anything like that. Rather, we have to explain why a seemingly bizarre legend from a pre-modern, pre-scientific people is trustworthy. Because today, people say, well, you know, of course they believed that Jesus was virgin born because people were naive back then. People were gullible back then. People made up stories to explain the things that they didn't quite understand, as if ancient people didn't quite understand how babies were made. But the text itself shows us that ancient people understood very well how babies were made. Look at verse 20. It says, nope, sorry. Look at verse, where is it? 19. 
Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her, divorce her quietly. Why does Joseph want to divorce Mary quietly? And you're like, are they married? They're not married, but they're sort of married. So in ancient times, when you got engaged, when you were betrothed, you were essentially married. You hadn't consummated the marriage yet. That happens at the wedding, but you are bound to one another. So that's why Joseph talks about getting divorced quietly because he was, in effect, married to Mary. But why does he want to get divorced? Because he knows where babies come from, and he's pretty sure that he did not participate in the conception of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 2, I won't go there, you can go there on your own time, but in Luke chapter 2, Mary has the same problem. The angel says, you're going to give birth to uh, the Son of God who's going to save his people from their sins. And she says, "Uh, how's that possible? I'm a virgin. And she says that because she knows precisely how babies were made. So we can't say, listen, these are just naive people who didn't understand science, stuff like that. Okay, they didn't get quantum mechanics. Fair enough. 90% of the people in this room don't get quantum mechanics. But we sure do know where babies come from, and they did then too. Okay. But that doesn't mean this is true. No, it doesn't mean this is true. But it does mean we can't dismiss this story as simply the result of poor, uneducated people writing down ways of explaining stuff they don't understand. On top of that, Matthew's concern is to convince Jews. He's trying to convince Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, and that He is God in the flesh. Now, you need to understand, the Jews, for the last 1,500 years, ever since they met God on Mount Sinai, you can read about this in the book of Exodus, They come to the Mount Sinai, and God meets with them, and He gives them the law. And what He says to them there is, He says, there's one thing you must never, ever, 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 ever do. Do not ever make an image of Me. That's what the pagans do. That's what the the nations around you do. That's what all these other people do. They try to capture the almighty, transcendent, all-powerful, all-glorious God in a stupid thing made of wood or stone or whatever, and they bow down to that. You must never, ever do that because I am far too majestic, far too glorious to be contained by some natural created thing. And for 1,500 years... They were told this, and they made sure they never, ever, ever, ever did that. And now, here's Matthew coming along, and he's telling God's people, yeah, you know that rule that God made about don't make an image of himself? He kind of broke that rule himself. Because Jesus is God with us. In other words, if you want to see who God is, if you want to know what he looks like, look to Jesus. Paul picks this up in Colossians chapter 1. He says, he, meaning Jesus, is the image, hello, there's that word again, of the invisible God. Hebrews chapters one, chapter 1 talks about the same things, and it calls Jesus the exact representation of God's being. The least likely people in the world to accept the idea that a human being could be God or that God could clothe himself in humanity 
were the first century Jews, and yet that's precisely what Matthew does. Now, what's the point of this? Why am I explaining all this? This was the introduction, okay? But don't worry, the introduction is longer than the sermon. Here's why I'm telling you this, friends. You have to deal with Jesus. Here's a person who came into the world and made outrageous claims. The New Testament makes outrageous claims about this Jesus. But since he's made those claims, billions of people have put their trust in him. Entire cultures have been built on his teaching. Our very heritage as a Western culture gains all of its greatest aspects from this belief that Jesus is God in the flesh. And we cannot ignore these massive, monstrous claims that Jesus makes because he makes lots of claims upon us. And you might say to yourself, well, yeah, but lots of people came into the world saying that they were God. That doesn't make Jesus God. No, okay, fine. Who were they? Can you name one? You say David Koresh. Mm, David Koresh didn't call himself the divine son of God. He called himself a son of God. You say, James, what's his name? Jones, Jim Jones. You say, Jim Jones. Ah, yes, but he didn't call himself the unique begotten Son of God. See, here's the thing. Yeah, there's been lots of people down through, through history have called themselves God, but virtually every one of them has been debunked as an absolute fraud because, you see... It's pretty hard to fool your closest friends about who you are. I might be able to fool you into thinking that I'm pretty awesome, right? But my kids who live with me, my wife who lives with me, my dearest friends who spend lots of time with me, they know the truth. And all the disciples believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And you say, wow, they they wanted the world. They wanted to convince the world that that he was the Son of God. Sure. But if they knew he wasn't the Son of God and they still wanted to convince the world he was the Son of God, do you think they'd let themselves be crucified or uh, thrown to the lions? Every single one of them, except the uh, Apostle John, was martyred for this belief that they so-called had. And never once did any one of them ever say, you know, there's this rumor going around that Jesus is God in the flesh. I got to tell you, if that's God, I mean, his carpentry skills, they're okay. But, you know, he could be a grump. And he was not always very forgiving. Or, wow, was he ever demanding. You know, behind closed doors where you didn't see him, you know, he was only willing to eat the red Skittles. You're like, what kind of reference is that? Apparently, that's what some celebrities do when they go to play a concert. They say, I want a bowl of Skittles, but I'll only eat the red ones. Very, very diva-ish. And Jesus was like that. But we don't have any stories of that anywhere at all. Yes, lots of people have said that they're God. But they were always proven a fraud. And for 2,000 years, Jesus has been fooling people with his divinity 
over and over and over again, transforming their lives, bringing them from sadness into joy, bringing them from suffering into uh, uh, sustainability, st- telling stories like Siobhan and Mark of, of taking people with past the pain and trauma and hardship and re- rebirthing them into a new life. You know Larry King? You guys ever heard of Larry King? Larry King was a, a CNN uh, news guy, and he became a, an interviewer, and he inv- interviewed some of the most powerful, interesting, brilliant people in the world. And he himself was actually asked, who's the one person above all else that you would want to interview? And he said, Jesus Christ, no question asked. Of course, that's the person I would want to talk to. And what's the question you want to ask him? He said, this is Larry King, I'd want to ask him if he was indeed virgin-born, because the answer to that question would define history for me. And that's right. This news that Matthew is declaring in these verses is not an interesting factoid. If it's true, it has cosmic consequences. And that's hinted at in this uh, quote from verse 23. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 23, where it says this. Or I'll start at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if you're like me, you grew up watching Charlie Brown's Christmas, right? And there's that beautiful scene where where Linus tells the Christmas story and he gets the lights right. And he quotes this this prophecy. And it's all really like warm and fuzzy. And and it makes you feel good. Ah, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And we all go, ah, that's sweet and beautiful. But actually, there's more to this prophecy than first meets the eye. It comes from Isaiah. And it comes from a place called the story of Emmanuel. This is Isaiah chapter 7 through 11, or the book of Emmanuel. And in that section of Isaiah, we learn about a a king named Ahaz. Ahaz was a king of Judah. He was a bad dude, not a very good ruler, and he was in trouble because the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and that guy's buddy, the king of Syria, wanted to attack Judah, take it over, remove him from his role as king, put up a puppet king, and, and subjugate all the Judeans uh, uh, to, their, to their rule. This is around 720 B.C. or so. And Isaiah comes to, to uh, Ahaz, and he says, Listen, Ahaz, don't be afraid. I've come to tell you the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord is this. This plan will fail. You have nothing to be worried about. This plan will fail. Ask God for a sign. And Isaiah says, or Ahaz says, nah, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. And the reason he's not going to ask God for a sign is, basically, is because he doesn't want to depend on God. He has already phoned up the, uh, uh, the king of Assyria, and he's already put a down payment on Assyria coming with their massive army to the defense of Judah to overthrow Israel and, and uh, Syria and and uh, allow Ahaz to be uh, the king of Judah, and he'll be more powerful than he was even before this all happened. 
And it sounds pious when he says, no, I will not ask the Lord for a sign. But what he's really doing is he's rejecting God's provision to help in their time of need. They need a savior. God says, I'm your savior, I'll be your savior. And Ahaz says, thanks anyway. And that's where we get God saying, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. Even though you didn't ask for it, this is Isaiah 7 verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and he will be called Emmanuel. God says, I'm going to send someone from the line of David who is going to rescue his people anyway. But if you keep reading, and most of the time we don't, you get to verse 17 in Isaiah 7, and it says this, The Lord will bring on you and your people on the house of your father a time like unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. And here's the thing. Because Ahaz, Ahaz refused God's deliverance, God is going to use Ahaz's deliverance as judgment. The lesson here is this. Yes, Christmas says, Christmas is news that God is with us. But he's not with us all in the same way. If you accept Matthew's claim that Jesus is the God-man who has come into this world to save us, then he is there as our Savior. He is there with us. But if you refuse him, he comes not as a friend, but he comes as a judge. In Isaiah 8, which is just one chapter past this, it says that, that Jesus, or, or that this Emmanuel will come either as a sanctuary for you or as a stumbling block for you. Here's what I'm trying to tell you, friends. This news of Emmanuel coming into the world, it demands a response. Larry King was right. If Jesus was Emmanuel, is Emmanuel, then everything has changed and you cannot ignore him. You cannot dismiss him. You've got to deal with his claims. And what's his claim? Verse 21. His claim is, oh, I'm not in the right chapter. Here we are. Verse 21, here's the claim. Jesus will save his people from their sins. God clothes himself in flesh to die, to rescue, to save. See, Jesus' claim is that you need a savior. Translation, you're a sinner. This is what you have to come to terms with. This is precisely what Siobhan's beautiful testimony was all about. Here's someone who had a lot of tough knocks in her young life growing up. She said it herself. She experienced trauma. She experienced a certain measure of abuse. She had fear and anxiety. She went through a period of postpartum depression, which is a deep, deeply painful experience. And, and, and she has every reason to, to say, man, I got, I got problems because people have messed me up. 
And if it wasn't for people messing me up, I'd be in a lot better shape. And, and God, why did you let this happen to me? But what does she say? She said what she had to come to, to grips with was the fact that her number one problem behind it all was not a bad father, not a, a, a difficult mother, not a, a pain in, in raising children. No, her biggest problem was her sin. That's what the coming of Emmanuel means. That's what the coming of God in the flesh means. It means that you and I are sinners. That means that you and I are messed up. It means that, that we are separated from God and our biggest need because we are moral failures is someone to deliver us from judgment that we deserve. The message of Emmanuel is that the universe is not morally relative. That it's not your truth that matters. It's not your moral standards that matter. It's that there is a divine standard that transcends culture and transcends time that all of us are subject to. And if we don't subject ourselves to it, we face judgment. And none of us has subjected ourselves to it. Every one of us has wanted to be our own Savior and our own Lord and made our own decisions. And so we deserve God's judgment. That's the message of Emmanuel. Peace on earth to men on whom God's favor rests. Who's are the one, who is the one on whom God's favor rests? Those who put their trust in this Jesus that's the peace that Jesus came to bring. Yes, he came to bring relational peace between nations and between individuals. Yes, he, he came to bring inner peace that you're no longer afraid of guilt and judgment and fear. But the ultimate peace that he came to bring, the primary peace he came to bring was peace between a righteous God and sinful human beings like you and me. Friends, as we love to say around here at Grace Valley Church, cheer up, you're way worse than you think you are. That's what the gospel tells us. But here's the thing. That's not the only thing the gospel tells us. It doesn't just tell us you need a savior. It tells you you got a savior. God with us. Jesus Christ, the God man. You deserve judgment. Jesus offers salvation because he fulfilled that moral standard for you. And on top of that, he died in your place, on your behalf. It's as if God, Jesus walked into God's courtroom and God said, where is the sinner that is guilty of sin? And Jesus says, I stand in for him. I stand in for her. Listen, friends. Christmas can be a beautiful time. Families get together. You eat too much. It's great. Uh, it's dark out early, so you just curl up and eat chestnuts roasting over an open fire. I don't know if anybody's ever done that, but <laughs> I've always wondered about that one, to be honest. But right, like it's, it's warm and, and cozy and family and presents and eggnog and slippers and you get what I'm saying? Oh, but friends, it's only that, it's only that if we first come to terms with why God is with us. 
why God had to clothe himself in flesh, why this miracle was necessary. It was necessary because we're sinners in need of a Savior. And the brightness of the, the, the candlelight shines best against the backdrop of the darkness of our sin. You understand what I'm saying? It's only when we admit the darkness of our sin that, that we can experience the love, the pure, unadulterated, omnipotent, unending love of God himself for us. And so don't forget that. Don't forget that. Yes, God is with us. And he will be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God Almighty, we thank you for all the warm fuzzies of Christmas. But we thank you for them because they were won for us through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin. Father, you don't require us to do anything to make ourselves worthy of a relationship with you. All you ask of us is to be honest with ourselves about our sin and then honest with you about our Savior. Help us to, to cast ourselves entirely on him, to rest and receive our Lord Jesus Christ, who you sent into the world as God with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.